Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Welcome to Transformation Change Radio. I could not be more excited about my conversation today with Jenna Ward Chandler, Elizabeth Anivi, as we talk about whiteness and how to dismantle whiteness in K-12, but I'm just learning they also are both doing incredible diversity consulting in many different types of fields, organizations. What I know is I, I got to know you both through your work on teaching while white and the work you're doing primarily with white women teachers, which I would have been if I hadn't gone into college administration, that you both are educators and Jenna Chandler Ward worked in nonprofits, schools, colleges over 20 years, 10 years of middle school teaching that in itself, English and drama, I would have loved to have been in your classroom. And then you have founded the Multicultural Teaching Institute, workshops, conferences for educators and equity inclusion, and now a wider range of consulting clients, professional development for educators. Again, the commonality for all of us is around whiteness, dismantling racism, creating true liberation, true racial equity in schools. And I met you, Jenna, through more of a white anti-educator gathering group that y'all invited me to. And then Elizabeth, I knew you just from the White Privilege Conference. I remember sitting in one of your workshops and you were at the Georgetown Day School then is what I remember. And that would have been what, 10, 12, 15 years ago. But your background, like Jenna, working with schools nationally to increasing equity, really about diverse pedagogy, you also doing some adjunct professoring at Lewis and Clark, which I'd love to learn more about maybe later. But you've also done in-school professional development, curriculum infusion, equity inclusion, change management, evaluation. And so the breadth of skills from both of you all, and I probably just did the tip of the iceberg of what you've done, has me so excited for our listeners to learn wherever they are in whatever industry, but particularly as they're thinking about homeschooling, and if they are teachers who are doing virtual or in person, since what, 80% are white women these days? Is that still about right? Yep. Probably cisgender, mm-hmm. mostly heterosexual, though a couple of us queers might still be hired. How can we help leaders in the leadership as well as the teachers themselves think about what is racial literacy for our teachers, our students, classrooms that are truly anti-racist, especially in these times, and then other types of organizations. What's our role and why do we need in this time of movement to be stepping up? So thank you both for joining. Thank you for having us. I know, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I I remember sitting in your session at the White Privilege Conference. So it's why it's amazing when our, our careers and our lives can intersect in these important ways and we can work together 
um, to, to try to make a difference at a time where we know, boys, there are a lot of work to do. Well, if you could both just share a bit about, I just, how are you and your families doing, your communities in these times of COVID-19 pandemic, where you are resurging in both states, I believe, as well as this time of racial reckoning and anti-racism protests that maybe finally will make some movement in my lifetime. Just how are y'all doing? And then I'll keep going after that. Great. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. I'm, I'm currently, I'm in Portland, Oregon. You may have heard about us on the news lately, um, having a lot of uh, protesting for racial injustice here in a state that was founded uh, by, in its very constitution um, around anti-Blackness. And so an incredible reckoning. My current place, I'm from the West Coast, originally grew up in Northern California. Um, so it's been powerful to be a part um, of uh, hope making change here, um, but it is feeling very much like I'm in a very particular place. And I've uh, been lucky um, with COVID so far, have not been directly impacted in my family, but trying to figure out we have a number of folks who have um, complicated health histories and could be at risk. And so trying to figure out. I guess for us, um, or what's been helpful to me in thinking about all of this is I'm trying to get schools to put together their COVID response and their anti-racist response and thinking broadly about this notion exactly. We need to think about healthy school communities and healthy school communities are free of this virus and they are free of racism. Um, that Those would be the most healthy school community. So as I'm watching leaders um, try to struggle, well, I've got, we've got our COVID response and then we've got our racial justice response sort of being like, you know what? Do it all together um, and be pushing in one place and let's let's keep our focus, let's keep moving forward. And so that is that is sort of sustaining me in this incredible moment. Mm. And how about you, Jenna? Well, I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, personally, my family, we're okay. We're a small little family in a small little spot. Um, it's been challenging as it has been for most folks and um, also recognizing that the ways that it's impacted us has very much been buffered by the fact that we identify as white in my family. And uh, watching the landscape here in Massachusetts, in Boston, colleges, universities grappling with whether to stay open, do hybrid models. Um, there's just this sort of angst that's permeating everything and everywhere you go, I think. Um, and it has been that way since the pandemic started, but also since uprisings and uh, police brutality has become more, um, in the four of our news cycles, there just is a heightened level of anxiety that I feel everywhere, including our family. So we're just trying to take it one day at a time, I think. <laughs> as so many in this country around the world, and as you said, so many with far less, at least for me, class, race privilege, education privilege, place where I can shelter in place. I think I'm in my fifth or sixth month, I've lost track. Um, and we're at a time where, as the schools are starting, my fear is too many white leaders, educators, and nonprofits, as well as corporations, the first two months after George Floyd's murder execution, there was so much energy and let's get out, you know, another letter, let's have a town hall. How many will do the deep systemic change work that you are about 
and especially with the resurgence of the pandemic in so many parts of our country, I'm afraid that leaders in all kinds of industries, but particularly K-12, are assumed there and then using that as an excuse to not have to have these healthy schools, which the intersection of dismantling racism and creating truly healthy schools around pandemic, much less other issues of social justice. So are you beginning to see some whites pulling back or are you actually seeing white leaders, white teachers moving in I, I think I'm I think I'm seeing folks leaning in. I think there's a fear that folks don't know exactly what to do, especially around curriculum. So I think folks have been able to try to clarify values. I'm watching folks really uh, articulate what the expectations are. So I'm seeing a number of leaders saying like, we're going to change the school culture. Here are some expectations are going to change. One place that's going to change is our goals around professional growth. So I'm happy to see that folks are using some of the evaluation systems, the built-in systems to say, we're gonna be adding or figuring out how we could add an accountability measure to our evaluation system. And I think that's been really helpful because I think that starts to, to name this as a professional expectation. Um, but I do think I am still hearing the panic of, okay, and, and now Jenna and I get it all the time. Okay, so just tell us what to do. What's the 10-point plan, right? So then I teach this, and then I say this, and then somebody says that, and then, and then what do I say? I think this notion of wanting like the script or the specifics and really having to sort of step back with folks and say, we need to do a mindset change. We need to talk about how you want to show up differently in the space, and then you can figure out what you want to say. But you're not going to say it the way I say it, and or the way Jenna says it. You're going to say it the way Kathy, the way you need to say it. You need the space to practice that. So trying to get them in the mindset of there is no and 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 white folks so subsumed with I've got to get it right. I've got to say the right thing. I'm afraid I'm not going to say it. And and um, I learned this really well from Jenna. It's not. It's not, you know, how do you prevent yourself from saying the wrong thing? It's like, you are going to say the wrong thing because we live in a society that's steeped in racism, so it's coming. Are you ready in the moment when you say it to have a response, give a repair, make amends? Like, do you know what you're gonna do? And so that's part of getting folks through that piece of, oh, it's not a plan. And then I'm watching folks recalibrate. Oh, so you can't just tell me what to do. I'm actually, so I almost feel like another level has opened up, if that makes sense. And folks are like, oh, when people say I have to do racial justice work, oh, now I get it. Uh, or they're starting to get a sense of it's something bigger than what they thought it was. Hmm. Yeah, I will add that I definitely am seeing folks saying, well, we don't want to roll this out until we're ready. It's got to be right. We want to do this right. And uh, just reinforcing that it's right, it's what you've got right now. And just like any other part of curriculum or pedagogy or instruction or policy, it requires analysis and reflection in an ongoing systemic way that you aren't gonna create the perfect curriculum, the perfect PD for your teachers, and then there'll be no more issues. It's this ongoing willingness to engage and to not just check the box, but to engage in an ongoing reflective way. And I think it's so much easier to look externally, right, than internally. And so people are looking to experts, so-called experts, to come give them the perfect, we want to do this right. How do we do this right? Um, and I always defer and say, you know your learning community. This is from what you've told me. These are some suggestions. But again, this requires a 
ongoing analysis and critique and ongoing work. Yeah. And not only looking at our curriculum or pedagogy, but really looking at ourselves and our self-work. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you all mean by racial literacy. It's on your website, Teaching While White, and what you mean by that. I've got my own you know, checklist of here are the competencies I want white change agents to have. And if you want to fill in a little bit about your own journey, because you all were born with this awareness. <laughs> and so how did you come Mm -hmm. to really have anti-racism, racial justice, such a core part of your life, mm -hmm. and to really know that racial literacy is critical for teachers and students as well as administrators. And what does it mean? Well, I'll, I'll speak to the term racial literacy because I think we, we learned that from Dr. Howard Stevenson, who's at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, folks may be familiar with his work. He wrote a book called Promoting Racial Literacy in Schools. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, had a partnership with him starting back in 2000 and sort of bringing this term forward about what that would look like. I grew up not talking about race, uh, talked a lot about ethnicity, was raised to be colorblind, lovely liberal Northern California, nobody more down than us folk from San Francisco. And um, this notion of that we, you know, there was no racism in California, we were good, we had escaped it all, uh, other parts of the country had dealt with it, we were good. And so I had a real reckoning, uh, I can use that term when I was 25, and I had really uh, serious incident of racism in my classroom. I was teaching a high school English class and um, had was called on the racism in my classroom. I tried to quit, I said I'm out, talk about not being able to deal with any kind of racial stress, and uh, tried to quit. And another white woman looked at me and said, well now you figured out that you're white and that it matters, now I can work with you, let's mm -hmm. roll up your sleeves and get better. And so I think my piece came from how did I get so far in my life and not have talked about it? How did I get through my teacher education and never talk about it? So my goal became, can I please not let another white woman like me storm into a classroom and do a lot of damage for what I didn't know? And I was angry at the beginning. I was really mad. Why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't I know? And this notion of racial literacy helped me really start to see, oh, there are these knowledge and skills that were not a part of my education that now I can know. And I was sort of like, if I can do it, anybody can do it. So I think that's what keeps me going is, is in my own integrity, not wanting to uh, commit or uh, trying to challenge racism whenever it shows up in my teaching, because it will certainly be there. And how do I challenge it? How do I work through it? And mainly, how do I support other white teachers to not have to go through what I went through, because we can teach our, there's a lot of this, it's not a 10 point plan, but we can sort of scope and sequence folks if we help them understand there are aspects of racial literacy, just like you come to know any other literacy. It's how you learn the alphabet, right? Um, it's how you learn your number systems. If you speak another language, how did you learn another language, right? Um, you went through the steps and the process, right, to get there, that's for me. Yeah, I think of racial literacy outside of what Howard speaks of. I, from my own awakening as an anti-racist or wanting to be an anti-racist educator, um, racial literacy has really been about understanding myself and everything I've been able to implement and utilize in the classroom, working with administrators, looking at policy has come from my own understanding of myself as a white person inside the discussion of race that for so long I think folks, white folks for myself, have thought of themselves as outside something to sympathize with instead of understanding that this impacts all of us. And I think for me the literacy came from 
really knowing that I show up into every room as a racial being and how does that impact what I know, what I see, what I teach, what I think about to teach. And I wish I had a glamorous aha moment as to how I got here, but it really took many decades. It was slow. And I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I went to one of the last public schools to desegregate in the country. And yet I was one of very few white children in that school at the time. All the teachers were white, but it wasn't until much later that I started to reflect on that and understand that I felt even then that there were different expectations for me as a student, as a white student in that school. And didn't have the framework understanding to figure out what was going on. And I was in a highly racially charged environment where we sang cotton picking songs in my music class, right? And there was no discussion. And my parents, though they considered themselves activists, still in that era to talk about race was racist. So I had no way to make sense of all of this. So slowly, gradually over time, becoming an educator myself, starting to examine what is it that I think I know, where did I learn it, and really taking those moments to examine all of that so that it wasn't living unconsciously in me and that I wasn't acting out all these weird beliefs that I think I know <laughs> about race. Um, so really my, all of the tools have come from that self-awareness, I think, and it, and it, and it increases, you know, I, I fall back out of my awareness and then I have to sort of dig my way back in because it's hard sometimes to take a look. Um, so I don't want to imply that I've arrived in any way, but just committing to that personal reflection is so important in this work instead of that 10 point plan. Well, I relate as a white person, I want a checklist, I want to make it fast, quick fix, and not have to look at myself to really own the racist attitudes I had and the ones I still trip over. There's probably not a day goes by whether I'm watching the media or TV, a person of color comes up and my snap thought is less than deficit. I still am struggling with this whites are better, folks of color deficit. And I, I did grow up a little before y'all did. Um, but I still see those same messages in TV shows, media today, children's books. And so what would a racially literate teacher be doing? Looking at their curriculum, their pedagogy, uh, how they run the classroom. So let's just break those down uh, one at a time. What would a racially literate, a racially just curriculum be? And why is it critical? I would just start by echoing Jenna's point about that notion of personal development. And so I think for me to make the shifts in my curriculum, I had to figure out I was a white teacher and I had to, I had to understand what that meant. And I'm still on that place of figuring it out because it's very difficult to teach about something that you don't think you have. And I really believe it's sort of people of color because I was equating race with racism. Um, and so uh, I, I thought, well, racism is this horrible thing that happens to people of color. I sort of felt like I was a bystander about it. And so therefore in my curriculum, how did I teach my curriculum? I taught my curriculum the same way. Racism was this horrible thing that happened to people of color. And when I taught about it, we read books about it. Um, then we could just read about this racial oppression and know it was this horrible thing that happened to folks of color. And then we would keep it moving. And that's probably what we see most in curriculum development now by folks well-intentioned like me who were like, oh great, let me bring in these voices of folks of color. Well, what happened was is that I wasn't 
when I was teaching white people or talking about whiteness, that was just left as normal and sort of unnamed. Um, and so then folks of color had a race, they were experiencing racism by bad white people, certainly not us or anybody in the room, right? Whoever these other bad white people were. And so it sort of left then, um, and this is what Jen and I talk about, our fear of, you know, we're raising another generation of white children who don't know how to talk about race because yet again, um, they are being positioned. The only explication of whiteness or the only time whiteness shows up is in these horrible oppressors who have killed uh, folks of color, did violence towards folks of color, which is absolutely true. But what's happening is that's the only place whiteness is showing up. And so then we watch white children be like, well, why would I identify as white? And why would I want to have anything to do with this? Because basically you're just telling me I'm racist. Where do I go from there? Um, and so when we speak about trying to work on curriculum, just like we say with teachers, and then I'm going to hand it to Jenna and pick it up. But part of it is how do we just start to locate racial identity in the classroom first so that all children in the classroom, whatever age they are, they know they have a race. White children need to understand white identity, I think, before they can process how whites um, held up enslavement, right, in this country, you know, for African Americans. We certainly can get there, but without that absence of identity um, and understanding that whiteness means something, that they have a race too, um, it, it gets really difficult if we jump right to oppression. Yeah, so racially just curriculum, we talk about making sure race is named and discussed outside of exception and oppression, that both for kids of color, they see themselves outside of the oppression, oppressor uh, dynamic, that there is uh, reflections of people of color going to the grocery store, leading families, living lives, but also standing in resistance. And that the, the naming of whiteness, as Elizabeth said, doesn't only show up as oppressor and or savior, right? Um, but also that power and systems of power are made explicit, I think, in a racially just curriculum. It addresses the fact that there are always power imbalances and what is systemic and what is institutional power versus individual power. And I think you ask, why is it so important? In the absence of those discussions, which is what we're seeing, kids are doing what probably all of us did, and I, and I mostly am talking about white kids, they rely on stereotypes, media, because there is no other scaffolding discussion. Parents aren't talking about it with their kids. Teachers are too scared that they're gonna get it wrong or say the wrong thing, so they're not discussing it. And there's this absence, and we think that to name it what might raise awareness, might cause racism, when in fact, the absence of discussion and not naming it is what's creating and perpetuating racism. And my guess is in the curriculum, also a sense of empowerment of what you can do, whether it's students to learn more in assignments, find more about your history. Because yep. uh, I was trained K-12 to teach social studies and history. And I don't remember ever really recognizing that one could be white as a change agent. I saw the abolitionists, and that might be some of the exceptions. And then I saw the active racist slave owners, those sorts of things. Um, but I didn't see, first of all, I didn't see the slave patrollers, you know, the precursors to what we now have as police and police brutality today. But I just didn't see everyday whites who might have, I just had a flash. I, I study a lot around Nazi Germany and there are a lot of novels that I read that are everyday French, German, 
other folk that may have taken one or two folks in, whether they were political change agents, whether they were Jews. And so it's that every day. And so I would think a racially just curriculum shows students every day, if this happens in the lunchroom, this is what you can do to step up and engage. If this happens here, and here's how to look at a text with a critical race lens so that you're not just absorbing what got written by that perspective, but you really are getting multiple perspectives, power, privilege, marginalization. Absolutely, and practicing activism, giving students, youth, a chance to practice activism and feel a sense of agency. It's a learned skill like any other. And where are we offering young people an opportunity to make change and to use their voices? And we often hear from white children, especially that, you know, you talk about the bad things that white people did in the past, um, but then we're often not talking about what's happening in the future, or what's happening now and connecting the dots, right? To your point, Kavi, where you can see how these historical trends have gone right through. But, but I think this nervousness of teachers to wade into conversations today, again, for fear, like it's too loaded. And we often hear you know, from teachers, well, I'm not supposed to be political. Um, you know, I've been told that I have to be neutral. And I think we've started start to realize that, that a racially just world is not a neutral world, right? Um, it is not a place where we've decided we're just not going to weigh in. Um, we know that children who are experiencing racism or are under racial microaggressions Microaggressions or racial stereotype threat that they are not then able to access the curriculum, connect, you know, dig in in particular ways because first of all they're having to fight through the racism before they can ever get to calculus. Um, and I don't think we're seeing how we're throwing those roadblocks in the way. Um, and when perhaps we have a, a student who's not doing as well, a student of color is not doing as well, instead of thinking about, well, gosh, how might white supremacy be getting in the way or the lack of racial justice? This kid's got to, you know, navigate this and navigate that. Maybe we clear some of these barriers and, and see what happens. Instead, we keep blaming the kids, right? Or we blame the families or we blame the neighborhoods. Um, and so that notion of Jenna and I think racial literacy teachers need to be looking at their expectations, how they've been influenced by bias um, and prejudice. And so there may be certain students for whom I have lower expectations. I don't quite expect them to do quite the same, right? Um, and so therefore then, then I'm not at making the same demands. I'm not giving them the same quality of feedback. I'm not engaging in them in the ways that I need to. So. I think this whole notion of, of, of racially just, um, and if we believe in a multiracial solidarity um, to moving forward and living in a just world, then everybody's gonna have to have a way in. Um, and, and the notion of moving through a curriculum that would allow students to do that in the present, as well as the past, I think becomes really important, but folks are terrified of the present. And the elephant in the room, we can say, is the upcoming election, and all these teachers saying, I don't know, and how am I supposed to, and how are we supposed to deal with the election, Elizabeth? Where, you know, where, where is that going to be? Um, and folks saying, I'm just going to skip it. I'm just going to, and I don't, I don't think that's going to be possible. I don't, I don't think we can do that. I don't think we should do that. Um, and I think we need to be talking to each other about ways we're going to wade in and look at the racial um, makeup of what's happening around um, pieces in our political system right now, where it's just very relevant and real. I could talk to y'all for hours. When we come back from break, I'm going to start with, with y'all sharing how people can find you because already I can tell people are going to want to find you and how can you work with their schools or their other organizations. So I'm Kathy Obear, Transformation Change Radio, here with Jenner Ward-Chandler, Elizabeth Benevi. We will be back talking about anti-racist education.
I have had such a good time on Tales from the Mer World Radio. It has been an opportunity for me to expand myself so dramatically and become much braver in my voice to speak about the things that I'm passionate about that are a little bit out there. Your staff is amazing. Olivia is amazing. Jessica, everybody. Anytime I need anything, they show up right away. So thank you for having such an amazing team that is allowing me this platform to do what Spirit wants me to do. Take us with you on that morning commute. Download your favorite podcast from the Transformation Radio Network. Just visit transformationradio.fm. Your inspiration all day on transformationtalkradio.com. Introducing the Lucid Planet, a digital gathering place featuring cutting-edge, high-vibrational content that will empower and inspire you to become the greatest version of yourself. Visit the Lucid Planet today to stimulate your mind, body, and soul as you connect with a global community of like-minded people. The Lucid Planet is edited by renowned psychologist and author, Dr. Kelly Neff, who is here to help you cope with anxiety, connect to your higher purpose, uncover your true passions, and live your dreams. Dr. Kelly's fresh, compassionate perspective emphasizes growth, transformation, healing, and thriving. Even in the face of adversity, say goodbye to bad news and low vibrational media for good and become part of the larger collective of people working together to navigate the global shift of consciousness and transform the world from within. Join the planet, the Lucid Planet. Visit thelucidplanet.com. Welcome home. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with my two phenomenal guests, Jenna Chandler Ward. I mispronounced it earlier. My apologies, Elizabeth Denevi. Would you please both start just how can people find you and what kinds of ways do you support organizations to be dismantling racism, creating racial justice? Yeah, so our website is teachingwhilewhite.org. Um, we are both findable, our email is there, and uh, links to some of the other work we do. And uh, I work uh, with Elizabeth doing workshops. We have some coming up, up specifically for white teachers talking about whiteness. Um, but I also work with schools, organizations, universities, uh, nonprofits, um, to look at issues of race with a focus on whiteness. I often co-facilitate with a person of color when we're working with faculty. If we're not discussing whiteness, I also do a lot of policy curriculum sort of overview, um, looking for the ways that we are supporting or reinforcing white supremacy. Um, and again, being the starting point to name and focus on whiteness, but working with colleagues of color to ensure, because as a white person, I have blind spots, that when uh, a school feels they are good, that they are also working with folks of color in this endeavor. Um, I do a lot of professional development for white professors, teachers, educators, administrators. Um, so that's the bulk of what I'm doing. Do you ever sleep? <laughs> no, actually, no. <laughs> a lot, not a lot right now. Um, yeah. 
So similarly, I do all that same work that Jenna talked about, having been a former school teacher and administrator. Um, Jenna and I both work, so our, our nonprofit that houses us at Teaching While White is called East Ed. It's the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. It was founded by an African-American school leader. So I think we feel that we always try to work um, in solidarity and in principled partnerships with people of color to do this work, because we often get questions at Teaching While White two white ladies talking about whiteness, what's going on? So we do have a group of folks of color who advise us, um, again, working with our founder who oversees all of our work. And uh, I'm also a coach, so I do a lot of leadership coaching. I coach superintendents, um, uh, building administrators, school leaders, those kinds of things, um, and coach a lot of teachers on curriculum, um, do a classroom observation protocol to look for how folks would see if bias is in their classroom. So often I teach department chairs or other folks who do observation protocols, and that's really fun because I get to see a lot of classrooms. Um, I also help to coordinate a racial affinity group here for fourth and fifth graders in Portland, Oregon. So that's been really interesting, yeah, to work with students um, on anti-racism. And then I do teach a couple courses at Lewis and Clark. So uh, working on helping folks, supporting folks to become school leaders and also working in instructional leadership. So it's a pleasure. I feel very grateful to be able to do what I, want, what I get to do every day. I join you to be able to live my core values most every day, except when I deviate and do something racist. It is quite a privilege Agreed. and a gift. Agreed. You know, as y'all were talking, I, I could have been one of those white teachers. And if you'd come and done a workshop in my school, I would have said, I've got no racial prejudice. I teach equitably fairly. My students would tell you that. How would white teachers like me even begin to know that they're teaching differentially, they're engaging differently, they're doing discipline differently. Mm -hmm. How would we know that we're not living our core values and our practices? Yeah, one thing I always ask when folks tell me that and I say, okay, great, where's your evidence? Like what, what, what tells you that? Can you look at student achievement data and you can tell me that students of color are doing just as well as white students in your classroom as proportion of who they are in your classroom? Let's look at your discipline data. Um, have you had colleagues come into your classroom? Have you measured how you respond? Do you extend the thinking of certain students and not others? What does your wait time look like? And what's so interesting to me is when I ask for that data, so often teachers just, yeah, it's a blank stare. Like I would have no idea. And so part of what I wanna say is, okay, like I wanna believe you, <laughs> um, but in the lack of evidence, we know that white supremacy will be operating. So I think we really try to encourage teachers to have a little more humility and to be willing to step back and say, we always say, I have yet, I have not met a teacher who gets up in the morning and says, you know, what kid can I be racist towards today? Um, that's generally not the folks that I'm working with, but unintentionally, if we are not looking at how racism may be implicating our practice, then we're replicating it in our feedback, in our curriculum choices, in our interaction with colleagues, how we speak to parents, all of those things, right? So I'm a big fan of, um, of assessment and, and of classroom observation. Um, and Zoom, now that our Zoom or Google Classroom or whatever you're using, it's a great time to record yourself giving you a know, press record, record your class. You could go back and look at it. I could send it to Jenna and say, Jenna, hey, take a look at how I interacted with my students today. What did you notice? Here's what I'm thinking about. Um, I'm also a huge fan of student feedback. Um, 
and doing a lot of work of, you know, teachers are often like, well, I don't, I don't, I ask students for feedback. They often give me feedback. It's not helpful. And I say, well, do you, have you trained the students on how to give feedback, right? Feedback is a skill. It's a really important anti-racist skill. We generally are not great at giving and receiving feedback. So I always say, have you trained your students and what good feedback looks like? And oftentimes teachers want students to evaluate them as they're on their teaching practices as opposed to the student experience. So I always say, don't, you often ask them questions about, oh, Elizabeth seems like she's prepared for class today, or Elizabeth really knows her subject matter. Well, I can look like I'm prepared and I can look like my, I know my subject matter. That may or may not be true, but I should be asking students about their experience in my classroom. Um, do they feel like I care about their success in my classroom, right? Do they feel like they are respected and valued members of the classroom, right? Do they feel like they can raise questions, that they can make mistakes, that they can ask for help when they need it, right? Um, and so I think those notions of observation and feedback, so there's some data. Um, and we're not just hoping or believing things are true, but we actually have evidence um, of what's actually going on. I think you're shaking your head, Jen. All right. Add um, to that. She's covered it all. <laughs> you've used these terms, white supremacy, several times. And if I've started using them more and more in the last few months, particularly, Many white people on Zoom, I see their eyes get big. Um, how do you talk about white supremacy? And what does it mean to you? Because when I was growing up, it was the KKK, the White Citizens Council, and I was, those were the bad whites. And I didn't till recently, it was the Kenneth Jones, Tema Oaken's work, white supremacy culture, that was huge for me to get that it's dominant white culture and a white supremacy ideology, whiteness ideology that actually has white superior folks of color deficit, indigenous deficit, and that perpetuates white privilege. And even that's whole jargony. So if you're working with your fourth or fifth graders, you're working with teachers, Jenna, how do you talk about white supremacy in a way that meets people where they are and really invites them along the journey? I think the first step is when we talk, the first entry point for many folks is this idea of white privilege, which many people really struggle with, right? And this idea of we're judging hearts and minds of teachers. And that's why talking about racial literacy is so important. This is skills. This is a skills-based competency. This is not about your moral value, right? We take it out of that good, bad binary. And that is sort of an entry point. And also understanding that privilege doesn't mean having extra stuff. Sometimes it means the absence of obstacles. So being able to get past those things, I think one of the important roles that white folks have in this work and why Elizabeth and I feel strongly about the work we do is that we can model that we can talk about some of the things that we've done and you're not gonna turn to sand, right? That you can work through this, that it's not fun always, but ultimately we step further into our integrity and humanity as educators. And who doesn't want that? And who doesn't want to be a better teacher for all of their students? When I talk about white supremacy, I like to use uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum's analogy of the moving walkway, that even when we talk about being an ally versus an accomplice versus you know what is anti-racist versus not racist that it takes actively running if if white supremacy culture is elevating white as right and whiteness as the norm 
that it takes actively running against it to get off that walkway. Otherwise, we end up in the same place, despite our intentions. And how do we even dismantle that walkway altogether? So I think it's thinking about systemic, institutional, we didn't create the system, but it's our job to be aware of it and to be aware of the ways that we support, uphold, reproduce, recreate white supremacy, as we are bound to do, having been raised as white folks in a white supremacist culture. So again, it's not about morals, it's about, but now there is some responsibility for, for recognizing and for taking some ownership and responsibility in how we dismantle this mess. I think, and I think you agree, that we white people have to do our own work, self-work, skill building, learn to find our courage to speak up. And if we do that in mixed race groups, the harm we do by what we say, how we interact, the white fragility, the defensiveness. And so I truly, in my soul, I call them white accountability groups. I would love to hear more when white teachers or administrators say, we can't do that, that's self-segregation, or no, 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 we have to, how do you talk about why it's critical, we white people, and for me, white people who are multiracial with white ancestry that want to work whiteness in themselves, come together, why it's critical, and how can you justify investing time, resources, in white people? My assumption is there are parallel groups with BIPOC folk. But could you talk about that? And then at some point, I have to hear about this fourth and fifth grader. It's blowing my mind. I wouldn't, can't even imagine what I would do with, what, nine and 10-year-olds? Yeah, they're the best. They're the best. Um, so I think we often get that question about white accountability groups. You may hear them as affinity groups, as caucus groups, you know, they're, 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 you know, but it's coming together around our white identity, not meaning that everybody has the exact same experience, but because of white supremacy culture, we have some commonalities of the way the world um, sees us. And for me, it goes back to this notion of white identity and trying to understand it. I grew up with no sort of like what I call like elapsed racial identity development. And so what I found was when I was working with teachers of color, or I still work with teachers of color, but when I was in the classroom and pairing, what did it mean if I was working with a teacher of color and she had been thinking about her racial identity for her entire life and I started thinking about it at 25. Like we had a 25 year skills and knowledge gap between us. And so I think the power of what a white affinity group has done for me is it sort of fast-tracked me being able to talk about my white racial identity development and starting to understand it. I never saw white folks talking about being white. Um, and I remember reading my first books about it, you know, and, and hearing white people talk about it. And it was sort of like they were speaking this language, you know, that, that was sort of like, oh, who knew, right? And so I think we have this catch-up work to do. So I think affinity groups are really powerful to sort of exercise our identity development so that at least I can hope that I can at least know that I have a race, understand how it's operating, so I can then be in a principled relationship with a person of color where they're not just the ones who have a race. I do too, that it operates. I can talk about my whiteness. They can talk about what their racial identity means to them. Most importantly, we can model that for the kids in front of us. And the thing about the nine and 10-year-olds, which I find so fascinating, is that by age nine, many of the white children are nervous about coming to the white affinity group because they think it's a bad group. They've already noticed that, that when, when I asked them, I said, when I say white, what terms come to your mind? And the first thing invariably they will say is racist. 
So they've already equated this notion of white with racist. And so we do a lot of deep identity work to talk about the stereotypes that they may hold. Um, what do they think about whiteness? How is it talked about? And then we spent a lot of time teaching them about white anti-racism. I share with them a lot of books and movies and stories about white folks who worked for racial justice. So we're developing a positive model and we talk a lot about what does it mean to be in solidarity with our friends of color? How do I stand up in a moment if I see a racial microaggression? We do a lot of role playing. Um, what would you do if you're out on the playground and you think something's happening and it's around race? What do you do? Um, and getting them to practice. Um, it's the things that, my God, if I could have had at nine and 10 years old, right, that I wasn't doing when I was 25 um, would have been just incredibly helpful. So they are amazing and they're not carrying so many years of guilt and shame and blame. And they can quickly spot white supremacy culture. I mean, they, they, they see it with very little prompting because we start to talk about, so where do you notice other people who look like you? And I make them little ethnographers and they go out in the world and I talk about who do you see at the grocery store and who do you see in your neighborhood? And who do your teachers look like? And what do we notice? Huh, it's a whole lot of white people and not a lot of people of color. And then of course we look at the Oregon constitution. Um, and I say, so folks, guess what? This was by design. And we look at the US constitution and they say three fifths. And they say, Elizabeth, did they write it as a fraction, right? Cause they're learning fractions, um, you know, in fourth grade and they're like, they did it as a fraction. They're like, how could they make a person a fraction? I'm like, exactly. And then they're outraged. And then they're like, that's not fair. That's not right. And then guess what? they're off, like they've got it. It doesn't, you know, so I mean, there's just, to me, the great joy of working with them. Mm -hmm. They just fill my heart um, because man, they're gonna go out and they're, they, they will be different. They won't be like me, they'll be different. And they're gonna ask for different things for this world to show them. And in the classrooms, they may be farther ahead than their teachers. So that's a whole nother dynamic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, which is why I was going to say some folks want to start right away with the students and I always advise that there be some adults being uh, doing this at least at the same time doing some white anti-racist affinity work so that they can catch those students, support them and have a level of basic competency to have, have a conversation about race and what's going on in our world today. In higher ed, I often challenge folks to have parallel investment in people of color as well as white groups. Different outcomes. I don't say this is what they do because that's just replicating whiteness, white supremacy. And yet the inner healing, the trauma, current life, full life, group trauma, as well as empowerment and how do you thrive in a predominantly white system. Are you finding K-12 school systems, districts are open to that parallel work for BIPOC folk, black indigenous and other people of color? Yeah, I definitely talk about the need. If you're going to resource a group to do this work, you need to equally resource another group. Um, and the work is different. And I talk about, we're trying to have a conversation about algebra and half of the folks or three quarters of the folks can't do multiplication, right? So we need to have that space to teach those basic skills in order to have the cross-racial dialogue. Um, and as you mentioned, for folks of color, the need is different and the outcomes are different. Um, and it also has shown that it builds community for, for both, for everyone. Um, and it impacts hiring and retention. Uh, the fact that these groups are going on, which is super important. How are we supporting our, our teachers, both who are trying to learn and those who need support uh, out to, to thrive in this environment. And so 
I think schools are slowly and universities are slowly seeing the benefits. And now we have years of research, I'm sure Elizabeth can say, we have the years of research and data now that show that it always, almost always has a positive impact on an institution or a district or a university. I think the, the main shift I've seen is there was a real fear that you know, you would do these affinity group conversations and then they just sort of exist sort of out there in the ether. Like, like there's like business as usual and then you do the affinity groups. And Jenna and I have worked really hard to say, look, affinity spaces are a means to an end. They're a place to think about our identity for white folks, practice our responses, figure out what we need to work on, um, figure out how, what my statement's gonna be about trying to interrupt white supremacy if I see it. So that when I'm in a cross-racial situation, I can show up um, in a much better way. And so I think folks are so worried that it's still about segregation. What I am noticing, I think folks are starting to see, there has been so much harm done in some of these cross-racial conversations that if we don't spend some time, um, we're not gonna be able to move forward with any kind of multiracial justice because of the harm that's been done. So I am seeing more of a willingness to have it. I just wanna make sure folks know they are not navel gazing spaces for white folks to sit and talk about how hard it is for them to talk about race. It's that it's to get your act together, advance your skills so you can be in better partnership and actually um, be working um, as a positive colleague with, um, with your colleagues of color and you can advocate and call racism out when you see it and not leaving it to your colleagues of color to call it out. In this current national context, which has just ballooned the last four plus years. I have faculty I work with say, it's just free speech, I have a right to say this, you're just talking about politics. And I have my own ways of trying to get them to focus on racism, but I would particularly love to hear, again, K-12, but you're in universities as well, how do you deal with whites who aren't more resistant and using, I have a right to say what I want, you all are just being liberal, leftist, progressive, anti-fada, whatever it's called, anti-fascist, whatever. <laughs> it's tough, it's very tough. And we're seeing more and more support for students. I mean, this is all before the pandemic, so it'll be interesting to see if that's shifted at all. But we're, we were seeing more and more support for students to say, I feel unsafe at school because uh, we're having discussions about racism, those kinds of things. Um, to me, and in my classroom, when I was a teacher, I would say, I am willing to entertain any number of ideas, arguments. I really want to have an exchange of ideas as long as no one's humanity or dignity is at stake. And as a teacher, I get to decide when we're stepping over that line. Um, with adults, it's harder to say that, but I believe that's what administrators need to be doing, saying, the absence of discussing these things is political it's not neutral and when we do that we cause harm in the absence of discussion we know this for lgbtq youth for without the discussion without actively engaging in these topics we are causing harm and our role is to support every child the whole child and kids adults families need to be affirmed, reflected, and supported, and their humanity and dignity is not up for discussion. I don't know, what did you say, Elizabeth? Well, and I think we, have, we, we now know that, that teachers and, and schools are in the business of learning. And if systemic oppression is operating, be it racism, classism, 
anti-Semitism, you name it, whatever is operating, it's gonna get in the way of children learning. And so I don't think we can start to delineate um, between that we're gonna talk about this stuff. We know it's toxic, we know what happens to our brains, we know what happens to children who are under racial stress, we know how it affects our physiology, we know all of these things, right? It impacts our health and impacts all kinds of things. So this notion, again, that, that it doesn't have any place in learning um, is what I've really started to challenge. And, and we know the brain research, um, if you, you know, looking at the success of Zaretta Hammond's work, culturally responsive teaching in the brain, where she wanted to connect that notion of that amygdala response. And when I've got a kid under free, uh, freeze, fight or flight, who believes that some aspect of their identity is under threat, that kid is not in a position to learn from you. And I don't care if you tell me you are the single best math teacher this side of the Mississippi, doesn't matter, right? Kid is not in a position. Um, and if they're worried about who's gonna say what to them about the bathroom they use, if they're worried about some mm -hmm. comment that's gonna come in the hallway, and I know we're, we're virtual right now, but we will be back in places. Stuff's happening virtually, right? Are people gonna judge my house and my background if I have my camera on, right? Um, somebody not gonna respect my pronoun um, the way that I, that I put it. What if I put a, a different pronoun that I've used at school on Zoom and I want folks to follow that? Are they gonna follow that, right? If you have a student sitting there worried about that and they're not available for learning, um, not because they aren't wonderful and amazing, but because systemic oppression is getting in the way. So this notion of that we can avoid it or get rid of it, I've said, uh-uh, not true anymore. We have too much research. We know how it operates. And so you've got to figure out how to wade in or you can't do your job, like very literally, right? It's about student success and achievement and with parents and teachers who still are not willing I also talk about, and tell me what you think of this, that actually a racial inclusive classroom helps all students prepare to be effective leaders in the future. And so your right. white child, you want them to be competitive, here are the skills around racial literacy that they will need now, but they will need if they ever wanna have a job as the world is changing in so many ways so fast, y'all are behind. Hmm. That's it. And also we know that racially um, heterogeneous classrooms all children show higher levels of critical thinking, greater aspects of creativity and problem solving, like skills that are in short supply at this moment. Um, we could use more of all of it. So yeah, it's not only get the skills that you need, but also when we're actually paying attention to the racial diversity in our classrooms and we're making sure that they're operating free of racism and we're really using that racial diversity to expand our brains and learn more about ourselves and connect in different ways, you know, more learning is happening and more possibilities are happening and and so to all but like it just rising tide will lift all boats so there it is you get busy listeners take a deep breath we're at the end of our time i could talk to y'all for hours i am so appreciative and honored that you all came to join in this conversation thank you so much jenna chandler ward elizabeth denevi if y'all would please remind people in just a short second how they can find you Absolutely. Thank you, Kathy, for having us. So grateful for you. You can find us at Teaching While White or at East Ed. Um, we also offer workshops on assessment and grading and other affinity spaces at East Ed as well. It's just easted.org. Thank you all for joining. I'll be back the first week of October with Diana Noriega talking about racially inclusive hiring practice, how to make sure you're hiring a racially competent staff, faculty, leadership, and it's gonna be a little different than you thought. Here's the headline, no more mediocre white people. <laughs> Welcome to Transformation Change Radio. Come on back in October. I wish you all incredible. And again, thank you, Jenna and Elizabeth for joining us. You all take good care. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio.